This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've heard so much about LRT. It is such a contentious issue. It's such a divisive issue. And now, of course, we have uh, a councillor that wants to put a referendum uh, as part of the next municipal election. It seems that uh, we accept this money, we move forward, and then we keep going back and questioning it after we've already what appears to be uh, uh, approved all of this and certainly have accepted the money. That being said, in the 11th hour, there's those that uh, I guess are feeling and hearing what what their constituents constituents are saying and uh, are, are doing their best to try to bring a referendum on this issue in the next election. And my question is, how much how much good or bad does a referendum do? Is it worth giving uh, this sort of, and I know many will argue this point at all, this sort of power to the people? I mean, that's democracy. Yet, on the other hand, is it leaders hiding behind a plebiscite, which Mayor Fred Eisenberger has suggested, and not making the tough decisions, not coming out saying they're against it, they're for it, and, and just standing behind that, but continually fighting and, and trying to change direction on a project? Uh, we all feel, we all, lots of us thought, w- was already moving forward, in, including the premier who came with a big check in hand and gave Hamilton the money. To talk more about all of this, and of course we've also seen what happened in, uh, in the UK with the Brexit vote. And it, what, it, what it has a tendency to become is a protest vote, a chance for the people and the public to sound off, but then once it's all done and said, there is no plan to take us Uh, in a life after the referendum. To talk more about all of this, Nelson Wiseman is with us, Professor of Political Science, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Hello, Nelson. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. So, Nelson, how how do you balance this? I mean, obviously, in a democracy, we want to give the public a say. And yet, on another hand, it seems we have politicians who are using this as a position not to take a position. I think uh, referenda are a dreadful idea. We elect people to make decisions. We don't elect them to stick their finger in the wind. So um, people vote uh, for all kinds of reasons besides the question on the ballot. They might vote because um, they don't like uh, the people in power or they don't like some other policy. That's what we saw in Brexit. We've seen it in all kinds of referendums. That's what we saw in the Charlottetown Accord. The Reform Party denounced that it couldn't have been good, they said, because it's Mulroney's deal, even though all the other premiers supported it. So it's just a a, a terrible idea. Did the councillor who proposed this, was this in his platform? No, I don't believe it was. Well, obviously not. So... Now he's bringing it out. Hey, why don't we have a referendum on whether we should have a referendum? Hmm. And uh, why don't we have a referendum on what the cost would be to have a referendum? Did hmm. you point out what would be the cost to have this referendum? I'm sure if you put that question to constituents, a lot of them would reconsider. You bring up a valid point, too, when you're having discussions about whether or not to have a referendum. And how many people are going to turn out to vote? Yeah, you know, yeah. what's your turnout now, municipal election? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, people start saying, look, uh, what are you having me trooping to the polls all the time? And can we have another referendum, Nelson, if we don't like the outcome of this referendum? Well, sure. I mean, that, that happened with Brexit, too. We had all kinds of people saying right after, well, no, no, you know, let, let's have a reconsideration referendum. 
So, you know, it's folly. And it speaks ill, in my opinion, to the councillor who proposed this. Why do politicians fall back on these? Well, they fall back on it because if you ask people in a poll, not, not in a referendum, if you ask people in a poll, would you like to have a referendum on X, Y, or Z? I have yet to see uh, a poll where people will say no. Yeah. No, they don't want a referendum. But will they actually go out to vote? No, that doesn't happen. What about those voters that would say, hey, it's our money, it's democracy, we vote, we, we, we have a right to have a say on this specific issue, especially well, if our politicians well, haven't been clear on it. Why don't you have a right to say on every specific issue, mm-hmm. uh, on changing the bus route? You know, it means a lot to some people in some, in, 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 you know, some, some councillors' district. Look, referenda get us into more trouble uh, than they're worth it. If you just want referendum, get rid of elections. Good point. And that would be chaotic, because that's what you elect people for. You elect them for their judgment to use. And if you don't like their judgment, vote against them next time. That, that's what a mandate is for. And I'll say something over and above that. I think transportation planning has just been, I don't know the ha- situation in Hamilton that well, but it's just been dreadful here in the GTA. Mm-hmm. Because rather than turning it over to experts in the area, we have politicians throwing it back and forth, like our disastrous one-stop Scarborough uh, extension, which is going to cost billions of dollars after the uh, and you know, and I hold this not just against the municipal politicians here on city council. I hold it against the provincial government, which changed its position because they were concerned about the outcome of a uh, by-election or two in Scarborough. That that's it's really irresponsible. That's what we have transportation planners for. So I don't know the situation in Hamilton that well, but if this project, especially if it's already begun. And there's been all this money put into planning it. I don't know if physically it's moved. No. Uh, but still, that's going to cost you a lot of money to undo that. And then you've got to think about what the alternatives are. And then in the end, what happens? Same as Toronto. Nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is very accurate. How do voters react to referendums and politicians who seek to have them? Well, uh, you know, I, I think most... Look, I don't think most people in Hamilton are preoccupied with this issue. When you say how, how do they react to it, uh, you know, I don't think many people are following it that closely. This is a pretty divisive issue here in Hamilton. Well, uh, but has the decision's already been made, hasn't it? It'll always be divisive, whatever decision you make. This has happened in Toronto, too. You're always going to have some voices who don't like a decision. Was a decision made by council? Did that council have a majority? If you don't like how people on council voted and they're your councillor, sure, let them know and really let them know next time by voting against them. But I suspect virtually all your councillors will get re-elected. So why do politicians rely on this? For that very reason? Because it does get them re-elected? No, no, no. um, They're going to get re-elected, whatever. It's very rare for municipal politicians. It's unusual for municipal politicians once they're elected to be defeated. Mm-hmm. It's not like federal and provincial politics. Uh, in the last federal election, we had 197 new MPs. I don't know, how many new councillors did you have on Hamilton City Council after the last election? Good point. So 
all I'm saying is when you say, gee, it's a really hot, divisive issue, well, it doesn't seem to be coming out in the election results. People seem to be still voting for the councillor, no matter whether councillor's for it or against it. <laughs> it. With referendums, is the public usually engaged enough to make a call? It depends what it is. I think you can, uh, a referendum, it's not just whether they're engaged enough. I think a referendum does make sense if it's an existential issue. Like, hey, you know, uh, do you want your province to separate from Canada, as they had in Quebec? Mm -hmm. I think the Brexit vote was more along those lines. But as I say, a lot of people didn't vote on that basis. They voted narrowly, many of them thinking, oh, this means we'll be able to uh, control immigration, without thinking of the other implications, like, oh, did you realize it means for you in Wales who have schools, those aren't now going to get funds from the EU? Oh, oh no, 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 no. So, uh, what, you know, that's, that's what happens especially, um, that happens even in, in referendum on existential issues. But look, in the, in the Quebec referendum, we had a turnout of 94%. That's because people felt there really was something at stake. Mm -hmm. What do you think the turnout will be in your hyper? in your referendum. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, what was it in your last municipal election? Mm-hmm. Well, I I, yeah, it, it, it'll be, it, would inter it would be interesting to know if it would pull it above the average. No, for sure it won't. Hmm. So you don't think that putting a LRT referendum on the next municipal ballot here in Hamilton would attract more voters to the poll? Well, I think people mainly go out to vote for their councillors, for, you know, to elect people. I think a lot of people go in there and say, what? Oh, oh I'm voting on LRT. Look, when the councillors run for office in the next uh, municipal election, they're not going, uh, most of them won't take a position on the LRT because you pointed out it's divisive. So they don't want to alienate anybody on either side. Well, and that's exactly what's happened here in the last election. And now all of a sudden it's chatter of referendum when they've already voted in favor well, of this exactly. project. They voted in favor of this project moving forward several times. Yeah, well, so, you know, they're voting against themselves. It, it's, it just comes back to the fact that if somebody in someone's constituency, a number of them, say, no, 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 we need a referendum on this. Sure, the councillors say, you know, let's have a referendum on it because that's a popular thing. Without saying, no, no, but I'm, but I'm, I'm switching my own vote. That, you know, that's the um, so. Uh, I'm critical of any such uh, councillor. Does and this I don't respect them? And because what they do is they demean their own position as elected people. Does this make the voter feel that they're more engaged by their politician allowing them? Because they'll they'll well, they'll uh, say, you know, we're just doing what our constituents have said. Our constituents are, you know, uh, want a referendum. Is that what their constituents said? Because five or ten or or forty or even four hundred is really is that what they said? Is that what they heard on the stoop when they went door to door last time in the election? Had they heard it, they would have put it in their platform. So we can't re, uh, rerun the election, and that's what a really a referendum allows us to do. Well, in one way, yeah, it does. And it, it doesn't even really allow you to rerun the election because your councillors are still going to be in power. Is this councillor willing to stake his position on the outcome of the referendum? 
Is he prepared to resign if the vote goes against the way he would like it to go? I don't think so. I think a lot of them are saying uh, it's what the people are telling us. Well, how, well, is, is that the case? Are they willing to resign if less than 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the people turn out? I don't think so. I think you're going to have a dreadfully low turnout, and I think it's just going to increase more cynicism in the political system. A lot of people right now go to vote because they feel a social obligation, civic duty. The more referenda you have, the more people start thinking, you know what, this is a game. What are we having elections for? Mm -hmm. I want to elect somebody, you know, look, I don't know everything. I don't know anything about transportation. You know, I know it's a long commute to get to work. I'm frustrated about it, but I don't know the technicalities or the uh, what would be in financing or the engineering of it. That's what I'm electing you guys for. And you guys, I'm trusting you to hire engineers and transportation planners who know what they're doing. So what are you throwing it back on me? You're not asking me whether, you know, you want to break up... Um, the, Ham the Hamilton regional area. You're not asking me whether you want me to vote on Ontario leaving Canada. That's a big issue that counts, you know, because right now I'm getting benefits from Ontario. But what are you asking me here? What, what did I go to vote for you? If this was such an important thing, why didn't you say in your platform, when you get elected, you're going to propose a referendum on transportation policy? Well said. Nelson Wiseman has been with us, Professor of Political Science, University of Toronto, talking about referendums. Nelson, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, USA Today has issued its first endorsement in history, sort of like an anti-endorsement, really. Uh, this is a uh, newspaper that I guess for 34 years has stayed away from this sort of thing, and uh, they've certainly broke with uh, that policy and basically have said that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. To talk more about all of this, Barry Kay is with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate this. Does this sort of action, uh, does it backfire? Does it actually fuel the cause? I'm not sure it really backfires, although I, I, there's been lots of endorsements apart from that one. The Arizona Republic, which is a big Phoenix paper, the Dallas Morning News, papers that are almost always Republican. In fact, I think the Arizona Republic has always endorsed Republicans in, ex in its existence. They've also endorsed, um, uh, in, in their case, they've actually endorsed Clinton, whereas the USA Today basically just said, don't vote for, for Trump. Um, the impact, uh, I'm not at all sure. I, I'm not sure that most of the Trump voters even read the newspapers. Hmm. Uh, they sort of, I guess, get their political uh, inclinations from, from, from other sources. Um, the, the, the Trump, we've talked about this before, the Trump phenomenon is, is totally unique. And uh, my hunch is that the core base of the Trump vote is impervious to not just these endorsements, but indeed a number of Republicans that have crossed the floor and have endorsed uh, endorsed um, Clinton, or certainly said, "Don't vote for um, don't vote for Trump." Um, I, I think where it may have an impact, though, because right now the election is close, to be sure, uh, and the number of undecided voters isn't that great, although it's somewhere in the ten to fifteen percent range, from what I gather. Uh, that indeed, with regard to those people, it's reminding people of what they perhaps have a feeling for in any case. Newspaper endorsements generally, I don't think, it's not just at the presidential level, generally don't make that much difference unless people don't have a clue about what's going on. They may matter at the municipal level. So I guess 
I, I guess the reason in in these situations is, is like you said in the in the situation of Arizona, it's the first time it's ever happened in in that paper's history, uh, and in the case of USA Today, they normally never do it because this is sort of unprecedented. What does that say? Oh, I'm again. I I'm not sure that people sort of understand the pedigree of the newspapers. Yeah. Um, I think the um, the question really the, the reason why I don't think it's going to have that much impact one way or the other is that people have a sense of Trump. If they want to be involved, if they feel they're going to vote in this election, people are going to have their own gut feelings about Trump for positive or negative, and it's for that reason that I think newspaper endorsements probably matter less than ever. Um, I think they matter less in national elections than in local elections, but they matter even less when, in fact, a candidate is as well-known as, as Donald Trump is. So is it going to have a huge uh, Well, I shouldn't say huge impact. It's not going to have a huge impact. Whether it has much impact at all, I, I don't know. I think events like the debates and, indeed, the way they comport themselves in the last few weeks of the campaign, those may very well change things. As things stand, and we don't have the full set of uh, poll results, really, from the um, from last Monday's debates yet. We'll know that better in the next few days. But at the moment, Hillary Clinton does, still does have a slight lead. Uh, Trump has always said that the media is out to get him. This sort of thing, does that fuel that argument for him? Sure, but that's, that's just part of his shtick. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that's his routine. He says that whether they do or they don't. Being anti-media and indeed anti-elite in general is really his signature. It's his calling card. Everybody's out to get him. Look, he's as much of the elite and has benefited as much from the elite and has benefited as much from the rigged system he complains about as anybody. He he's certainly is. He's rigged the system. He's buying politicians. He's not paying taxes. Uh, but uh, that's part of his line, part of his, his, you know, his story, that, in fact, everyone is out to get, get him except the people. Well, he's, he's not a certain- politician to say that, by the way, but in his case, that's just part of what, what, what the storyline is. Uh, I don't think it, it's hard to understand him being a victim of the media when there's no one else that seems to be able to play it the way that he does. Yeah, exactly. But you say it anyway. You say it because, in fact, it appeals to the people. And look, there's a lot of disaffected people. I, I don't want to suggest that's the entirety of his, his support level. But the people that have moved away from the Democrats or indeed away from just not being involved are people that have basically been left out of they have not made it as much in society. Yeah. These are people that are, it's not just that they don't have college educations, that's not in, in itself a problem, but because of that, that they are perhaps less likely to be economically successful, they may be unemployed. Um, and that these are people that, in fact, are drawn to the fact that this is a guy who says he's going to shake up the system. Um, I suggest to you that, in fact, should he get elected, and it's not impossible, I don't think it's likely, but should he get elected, I don't think he's going to shake up the system at all. I think he's going to add to the dysfunction because he's not the kind of guy that can make the deals and compromises that is required if one understands why the American political system doesn't work today. It's because of the polarization and the unwillingness to compromise. Uh, Trump basically operates uh, with insult and innuendo, Um, and that is not the kind of thing that's going to ingratiate himself to Democrats or, frankly, to a lot of Republicans in Congress either. You brought up something interesting uh, in your comment. You said, say it anyway. It it seems that that logic has been used a lot lately, uh, even to the extent where networks have fact-checking. I mean, 10, 20 years ago, did we have fact-checkers as part of the uh, coverage to, to you know, because so many people aren't telling the truth, or at least that's what we're assuming. What does it come to with politics when, if you just say it louder and enough, people will assume that it's truth. Well, it's, How can it's you a say it? Idea. Um, indeed, and there have been demagogues in the past, even before the era of the media as we understand them today. Uh, uh, Huey Long was an example of this back I, before my time, but, but back in the, the 30s. But basically calling your opponent's names, suggesting they're lying, even though you're lying more than they are, saying that they are, 
are, are beneficiaries of the establishment and uh, of, of the rig system, even though you are more of a beneficiary than any of them are. Um, look, again, it's, it's a game, and indeed, uh, it's, it's cynical as hell. I don't, I don't want to suggest he's the first cynical politician. He's not. But that, indeed, that's just part of and it's worked. And his, certainly his mastery and understanding of, of media has helped vault him as far as he's gotten. But these, these various names, you know, lying this and corrupt that, you know, corrupt Hillary, lying Ted, I guess it was. Uh, the, this is just part of the game, even though by any objective standard, and ob- objectivity doesn't have much to do with it, but by any objective standard, Donald Trump has lied more than all of them put together. It was interesting during the ba- during the debate when the moderator tried to get him to qualify and, and and check these facts, and he just basically said the moderator was wrong. Yeah, sure, and he and deny, doubles down on everything, never admits any any fault of any sort. As as stated, perhaps I've mentioned it on your program before, but just remind people that he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and his supporters yeah. would continue to support him. Um, I mean, that's I, I think this is indicative. I'm not sure that's literally true, but the fact is that there's this a loyalty because this is an anti establishmentarian who basically sticks his middle finger at the way things are run. Lots of people are very unhappy with that, including lots of Republicans. But indeed, um, for his base, and there's a number of Republicans that are uncomfortable with it, but basically figure that he's the best ticket they've got to re-election this year, given that, in fact, he's now at the top of the ticket. Uh, the, but for lots of them, uh, the idea of sticking his finger at the establishment, even though they are establishmentarian themselves in some cases, is just part of the show. And he, again, he's a great entertainer. He attracts audiences and on both television and in person. He has a lot of political strength. Um, I think he's got incredibly bad judgment, though, in, in other kinds of ways. And the ability to um, to grow his base. His base is solid, and I think he's solid for at least 40 to 43 percent or so of the um, of the vote, maybe a little bit more. But that, in fact, he has allowed himself to, because among his shortcomings is this um, ability to allow uh, slights to get under his skin and to sort of obsess about them. The most recent one was this former Miss Universe who, who apparently uh, gained some weight and that he had problems with. But there's plenty of other examples of this, and I think the Clinton campaign is savvied on, because Clinton isn't that uh, attractive a candidate for many either. She's very unpopular, too. Mm. But I think they have now realized that the way to get at Trump is to let it make him crazy, basically, to, to basically throw in insults and throw in slights, and to throw in examples of his um, that, that he then obsesses about. Apparently he was tweeting about this overnight, sent a series of tweets. This was a story that could have died last, uh, last Tuesday, but he's still keeping it going because he was, he was slighted and he's offended and he wants everyone to know and he's outraged. So that's the downside of his personality. Yeah, he's, his own, he's really his own worst enemy, isn't he? Very much, but again, he's gotten this far, and mm-hmm. he, he, again, he thinks he walks on water. He just thinks that uh, there, nobody can do what he can do. I think he really believes it. Um, okay, so it, if he is just appealing to that, that base that, that, that everybody has pointed to, how do we explain the polls being so close? Well, that base is significant in size, and there's a lot of hostility or indifference toward Hillary Clinton. Uh, one can stay, I, I still, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I still think she's probably ahead slightly. But it's going to depend upon a lot of people who aren't very enthusiastic about her, particularly young people, what are called millennials, people who grew up since 2000, mm-hmm. um, for them to basically hold their nose in their minds and vote for an establishment figure themselves. These aren't Trump supporters and probably would never vote for Trump. But if they end up voting for Gary Johnson or indeed some third party, other third party candidate or indeed don't vote at all, um, it could very much weaken. Though they were, that, that age group was a very important element of the, of the Obama coalition. Yeah. The other important elements are minorities, and hopefully, uh, with regard to African Americans and Hispanics, they will vote in larger numbers. But Hispanics traditionally don't vote at the same level that most other groups do. 
Um, so um, I don't want to suggest this, this election is a lock. Young people and minorities, women are probably particularly educated women, college-educated women, very much on side for, for Hillary Clinton. But these other groups are important, too, because there's a big swath of the American electorate that's really unhappy with the status quo. In fact, deservedly so. The American political system stinks. It's totally gridlocked and totally dysfunctional at this point. I uh, suggest that, uh, that uh, Trump is going to fix it as nonsense. But that, nonetheless, is his appeal because he's an outsider in his mind. He's not a politician. I think we all kind of predicted what would happen with this last debate and that that Hillary would just outmaneuver him, that he would try to sell one line and, and one paragraph answers over and over again. And, of course, she just simply looked more prepared than he did. Uh, and I think a lot of people predicted that. Uh, how do you think the next one will will uh, play out? Do you think that uh, he'll do the same thing? Do you think he'll attack her more? Do you think he'll prepare more and, and try to have good answers when she does ask the educated questions? Uh, you're right in part about the first debate. I, I do think that Trump was worse than expected. People didn't expect him basically to fold up in the middle and just start rambling. Uh, I thought I, Because, in fact, he was fairly competent for about a half an hour or so into that, uh, that debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's less that Hillary won it, although she did. Then, then Trump lost it. Yeah. Um, the, the the format for the next. That's fascinating. You believe that, do you, Barry? That it wasn't so that she did such a great job. It's just that he, well, he folded. She did a competent job. Yeah. She did a com- she's not charismatic. She yep. does not excite people in the way that Obama did or that her that her husband did. Right. Um, the next debate is uh, a very different kind of format. It's called a town hall. It's going to be in the St. Louis area. Uh, and I guess at Washington University, if I remember correctly, in St. Louis, um, and that indeed it's going to um, it's going to be a different. It's not going to be two people just standing at, at podiums looking at each other. They're going to be people interacting with, excuse me, the um, the candidates interacting with with regular citizens, quote unquote, in in the audience asking questions, and it's harder to adjust to. We've already seen that he does not handle things well when he goes off script, which means off the uh, the teleprompter. Mm-hmm. Not, he didn't have a teleprompter Monday. He won't have it in the next. Uh, in fact, he won't have it in any of them. But I think the next debate is most problematic. Will he prepare more? He certainly should prepare more. Again, his ego is such that he probably has convinced himself he talks like he actually won that last debate when very few other objective people would have seen that. Um, my hunch is that he will be convinced, particularly when polls start coming out in the next few days, indicating that Hillary has ticked up at least a little bit. I don't know that uh, the, um, the, the numbers are going to change dramatically, but my hunch is that Hillary will go up from a two-point lead to perhaps a three- or four-point lead, and that as a result of that, he may respond and start taking the preparation more seriously. But frankly, I think this whole debate format, when he is off a teleprompter, is going to be very challenging for him anyway. He does not do as well. He's going to have to prepare more. He may do better. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that he is going to trump her in the, in the c- debates to come, however, given the fact that he does, not, he does not have a great attention span. He does not like going into details. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have a hunch that he will probably be told by the people around him to, to prepare more, and they'll try to push him into it. But ultimately, it's him. He is the biggest strength, but also the biggest weakness of that campaign. Uh, will he ramp up the name-calling? That seemed to have worked. That has got him where he is. Lots say he's got to be more presidential, but it seems the more presidential he is, uh, he, you know, he strays away from that base. So does he have to go back to just being extremely aggressive and, and, and ramp up the, the, the rhetoric? Well, that's what he does when he panics, when he's not on script. Um, yeah. And he's already doing it. Apparently, he's talking about all the, uh, the women in Bill Clinton's life 25 yeah. years ago. Um, the irony about that, uh, that may be new for millennials, but for most p- voters, that's old stuff. And frankly, if one remembers uh, 1997 and 1998, 
the scandal actually helped Bill Clinton. It was embarrassing, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But it's the only scandal I ever remember where the candidates' uh, public opinion ratings went up rather than down in the middle of a scandal. Hmm. Um, and to think that 25 years later, or 20 years later, I guess is closer, uh, that in fact that's going I, to... I think he may very well do that. He's already starting to do it. I don't think it's going to work. I think his strength is basically pushing the economy, pushing free trade, suggesting to people that indeed those are the things that he's going to work on. I would suggest to you that if he got elected president, he wouldn't have that much impact because most Republicans are totally disagree with him, most Republicans in Congress, on the free trade issue. And uh, he would have a great deal of difficulty. He is not going to be able to be a dictator, even though that would be ideal in his world. Um, he's going to have to deal with the checks and balances and the separation of powers of Congress. And forgetting about the Democrats, the Republicans, and many of the Republicans aren't going to work with him. But in terms of the, that's what the future would be if he got elected. In terms of the campaign, um, I think it's um, it um, that would be the the strategy to just stay on economic kinds of issues and job creation, even if it's total BS. Um, the fact that he's at least saying it, I think, is the kind of thing that might resonate with swing voters. But if he gets into that sort of conversation, into the weeds with Hillary, won't she just simply outrun him? Not sure, because in fact, the best his best part of that first debate was the first half hour when yep. he was basically on those issues, mm-hmm. suggesting that Hillary had been around for 30 years and things hadn't gotten any better. In truth, actually, they have. But nonetheless, that argument resonates with people who are basically have been left out by the economy already. Yeah. Um, and to suggest that any kind of change, change is really the, the core message that he should, be, um, he should be portraying. The American system does not lend itself to one person, quote-unquote, fixing everything, even though he's claimed he would. It's just not the way the system works. And indeed, the, I, I, I'm not optimistic that whoever gets elected is going to be able to do much in terms of domestic policy. Foreign policy is another matter, and that's where people, I think, are ge- thoughtful people are genuinely fearful. Not so much of what he's going to do domestically, because he's not going to get much done, but what he might do in terms of foreign policy is sort of a, uh, a loose cannon, uh, sort of wrecking NATO and, 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 and very much changing the uh, international order, which already has problems today. Uh, and anyway, that's the fear I would have about a Trump presidency, not so much what he's going to do domestically. Well, this he, he talked about after the last debate that uh, he could have gone here, he could have gone there with respect to the family and, of course, decided not to. Will this next debate, will it become more personal? Uh, will well, he yeah, bring in other men? Will he bring Bill into this fray? He's got to work it in. Remember, the, these are questions that are going to be asked by, by people in the audience. Mm-hmm. And he, just switching from a discussion about free trade to a uh, discussion of Bill uh, Bill Clinton's infidelities 25 years ago is not something that can easily be, yeah. be segued to. But he is talking about it be, now, between now and then, and it may put ideas in the heads of the people that are going to be participating on the, um, uh, you know, on the next debate. I think the next presidential debate is on the 9th. That's the, uh, the following Sunday. The next actual uh, debate will be the vice presidential debate Tuesday night between right. the vice presidents. And then there'll be one more uh, vice presidential candidates, and there'll be one more on the 19th, I believe, is the final debate. The VP debate will look terribly boring compared oh, to sure. these, won't it? Look, um, they're both pleasant people, uh, but uh, neither <laughs> is a dynamic speaker. And look, vice presidential debates, and indeed vice presidential candidacies, historically, haven't made much difference. Even when there has been a clear knockout, and there have been one, I remember with... Um, Dan Quayle against uh, Benson yeah. in, uh, in 1988, yeah. that indeed uh, Benson clear, uh, cleaned his clock yeah. with that famous, uh, that famous reference that I knew John Kennedy and so forth. Um, it didn't matter. 
the, the vice presidential debate sort of lets them have a bit of a stage and lets people see them. The, the debate on next Tuesday on the 4th is not going to change the election. That being said, Barry, since nobody likes either candidate, it appears, are they putting more, uh, are they putting more consideration into the VP? I mean, does it mean more this time? Because not, mm, people really aren't happy with either one of them. Um, logic might suggest that would make sense. I don't think so. I, I, just don't, <laughs> think that I, I don't think either, uh, neither of them are particularly riveting people. But yeah. it's not just that it's the number two position. Historically, the number two position hasn't meant that much in terms of the outcome of the campaign. Uh, there are people, if Elizabeth Warren had sort of been selected, I could imagine that she might have shaken it up a little bit. She was the uh, Massachusetts uh, senator who was much more, the one that uh, Trump called Pocahontas, was much more in Trump's face. Wow. She might have had more impact, but, but with both Pence and Kane, and they're, I, I gather, I tend to favor one rather than the other, but they're both, I gather, reserved, polite, nice people who don't go around offending people. Um, but that also makes for a rather boring debate, and I don't think if people turn in, I think they're going to be switching to, it won't be football that night, it'll be uh, probably the uh, playoff baseball, but a lot of them are going to be switching to the baseball game before the, the uh, debate is over. Are Americans uh, missing Sarah Palin right now? No, not really, <laughs> although, interestingly, uh, Trump is an outgrowth of some of the people that might have supported Sarah Palin in years gone by. No, look, Sarah Palin is box office, and, and Trump is even bigger box office. Sarah Palin certainly energized people positively and negatively, and Trump does that too. But uh, no, Sarah Palin's time. Look, she she would, didn't even finish her term as governor. She resigned, if you remember, in the middle of her term. Uh, Sarah Palin is uh, political has been. She certainly made a fair bit of money making speeches for a while, and she was on Fox News. Um, but uh, that was about her her um, her entrepreneurial career, her political endeavors. It wasn't intended that way, but that's basically the way it worked out. No, but Sarah Palin's uh, very much his history. She's, you were talking about you were talking about how the format of this is different, more of a town hall type uh, arrangement. How will each candidate react to taking questions from the crowd? Neither one seems to be really approachable. Um, yeah, Hillary. It, well, ideally, I've said this probably before the first debate. Um, Hillary would do best if she could sort of personalize things. She did start talking a little bit about her father mm -hmm. in that first debate. If she could connect with people in that kind of way, she comes off as aloof. If she can sort of let people know who she is, where she comes from, what she believes, and why she should be president, those are the emotions she should try to work in. She will rehearse like crazy in order to anticipate every imaginable question that could be raised and will try to do it. She doesn't come off in that particular way. That's just not a strength of hers. Um, that's not her only problem. She's obviously had some problems with uh, you know, issues like the emails and so forth in the past. Um, but um, I, I think she will be as prepared as anybody can be. For his sake, one hopes that, uh, although I hope he loses at the end of the day, for his sake, I hope that Trump is better prepared than he was last day. But I would think going into this, what, given what we saw last Monday, um, that indeed um, Trump is going to be very much be at a disadvantage because he just does not have the ability or the willingness to concentrate and focus on various issues, and in this case, preparation for the debate. Barry um, Kay has been with us, political science oh, professor. Let, let me just add, yep, add one more ahead. thing as I was uh, talking to your, um, your producer. I'm going to be speaking uh, to a function at McMaster on, on the 24th. That's Monday, the 24th of October at uh, McMaster University in the Information Tech Building. It's going to be um, from 1.30 to 3.30. I'm not going to be the only one on the panel, but for your listeners who are in the Hamilton area and are interested, we will be appearing in at McMaster at that time. That's uh, Information Technology Building 137 on the 24th of October 
at 1.30 in the afternoon. Is there a website we can go to, Barry, to find out more? Um, not at, not that I'm aware of at the moment. Uh, Henry Jacek, a professor at McMaster, is putting it together. I'm an old McMaster graduate, actually, and one of the other people appearing with me will be the person who taught me American government when I was uh, an undergrad <laughs> at McMaster many years ago. That would be interesting. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and of course will be at an event at McMaster next month. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, an Ontario MPP wants to outlaw scalper bots. That's uh, computer software that snatches tickets away from fans and concert goers before they even get a chance to get them. I'm sure you've experienced that uh, frustration. A recent example of how these scalper bots are getting tickets before anyone else, the tragically hip show, this seemed to draw a lot of attention to it as well because, of course, there was such demand. That being said, uh, New Democratic uh, MP Monique Taylor, uh, sorry, MPP, uh, said that uh, last year they created this mess, the Liberals, when they changed the old law that prohibited tickets for events from being sold above their face value. This uh, opened the door for this sophisticated uh, software. The legalization of the reseller market is where the issue starts, and that's where the government needs to fix it. To talk more about all of this, we'll get the MPP for Kingston coming on in just a sec. While we're waiting for her, we'll bring on Sid Bolton, curator, personal computer museum up in Brantford. He's with us now. Hello, Sid. How you doing today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate it. Uh, we certainly remember what it was like when everyone was trying to get Tragically Hip tickets, and it doesn't matter. You pick the concert or the show of the day, the event of the day. Uh, people are complaining about the same sort of issue. Uh, let me start by saying, did we did we facilitate this and, and, and sort of ask for it by changing regulations? Well, I, it certainly didn't help matters any. Uh, certainly... Uh, people that create sophisticated software to uh, essentially just to, just to sort of explain it a little better, this is uh, software that's been created to essentially appear like a human person buying the tickets, only as we know, computers operate much, much faster than we do as humans. And so, uh, and of course, they have great strength in numbers. So it's like having a an army of automated people being able to perfectly uh, attack a website and pick up tickets uh, in unison, uh, as many as the particular site will allow at one time. And that's why these uh, these pieces of software are so sophisticated and why they work so well. And uh, although I do think that certainly um, those changes have precipitated this coming out earlier, I do think that probably the scalping market as they compete against each other probably would have created something like this eventually, hmm. but I think it definitely uh, came about a little bit faster because of those changes. How does that, how does that speed up the process? How, how did this uh, facilitate this? Well, it basically puts pressure um, you know, on those that generate money that way to, because uh, you know, for a lot of uh, scalpers, right, that's, their, yep. that's their, uh, their revenue, right? That's how they make a living, just like whether, you know, there's lots of people that make they're living in questionable ways. This just kind of, for a lot of people, this is just one of them. And right. so they reacted. Uh, it's, a, it's like a self-preservation thing, right? So uh, somebody made a change, so this is their reactionary response. And so, you know, they kind but of... But what has changed things? What, what, what has changed their protocol? What's different for them? So instead of going out on the street and asking for more money, they can do it this way? Yeah, and essentially uh, it, you know, made the process of getting those tickets... Um, a little bit more difficult, and so they're sort of like trying to find ways to use automation mm. to grab those tickets and appear like 
uh, it's just a bunch of humans doing it legitimately, right? And so it's very difficult for, and now you're talking about software that now has to have a counter side on the other side, like from the ticket places saying, okay, is this a bot doing it? Or right. is it really, truly a person? And so it's, it's tough, right? Because it's like for every, it's like a big war, right? For every uh, measure that's taken by one side, there's a countermeasure on the other side and back and forth. And so while there's this silent war going on with software and ticket sellers, uh, you know, really the only one suffering here is all the consumers just trying to buy their tickets and enjoy entertainment. So, so Sid, why would you legalize the seller's market? Why would you even do the, uh, the reseller market? Why, what's the, even the advantage to that? I guess the advantage is that, well, if you don't want tickets, you can resell them. But how many people are out there hanging on to concert tickets that, oh, I bought the show and guess what? I forgot it was Aunt Nancy's birthday and I can't go. I mean, there's not that many people. The reason these are being resold is for pure profit. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think there's definitely you know market for... Uh, people that do have those tickets, and there's there's websites, you know, that that do it on a small basis. I don't think. Um, yeah, they were uh, once called want ads, Sid. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, how did we get from that to this? Well, you know what it is actually. It's the uh, the fact that now beyond the want ad, right? We've made it so that the internet has made it accessible for us to reach a, a wider number of people, and so automation and whatnot has made it easier for people to buy up these tickets in a way that, you know, you wouldn't have a scalper going out today and, like, you know, sort of standing there buying all the tickets manually. It just just doesn't happen the same way it used to. So um, as much as technology has made it convenient for you and I to legitimately buy tickets, it's also made it easier, essentially, for scalpers to buy them as well. So um, it's it's a really tough situation because uh, at the end of the day, like uh, I think the marketplace at some point will speak and say, look, we're not going to pay the extra for, that the scalpers are asking. And so therefore, they're going to be stuck with a lot of tickets that they just can't get rid of. But then there's always somebody that will buy them if they really want to go badly enough. So it's, it's really tough. And that's why it can so again, is there a need for a resale market? I mean, should should they be outlawed? I mean, sh- again, sh- should there be secondary and tertiary people involved in this? Shouldn't it just be the consumer buying the ticket from whoever's I selling? I think it should just be the consumer doing that. I mean, that's you'd think that with. I mean, if you look at other uh, types of situations, the, these additional markets maybe happen afterwards, but these are not. You know, a ticket is a want to an event is sort of a. Uh, a one-time thing that only has that value for that event, right? It's not like buying a tangible good, where right. like a book, where you could buy it, read it, and then pass it on to somebody in a secondary market. A ticket is is only good for that one particular use, and then that's it for that particular event. So uh, that makes it a little bit, bit harder. But I, I kind of wish that those markets would just go away. Like, why why can't we just buy the tickets that are available? And yeah, sure, if you happen to not be able to go, then you throw them up on uh, whatever particular yeah. site that's available, Kijiji or whatever, and say, yeah. look, I can't go, like you said, like, you know, someone in the family's gotten sick, I can't go, so I need to dump these tickets. Um, it's not like people aren't already using social media to get rid of those tickets. Yeah, so yeah exactly. It's, like, it's already there. So how what, what can this MPP do? How can she fix it? Uh, is there something that can be done here? Or is it a case of just going back and, and revisiting this legislation? Well, from what I understand, it's uh, it's a little bit tricky. Like, not a, uh, making this sort of uh, particular situation transition from uh, into a law. I understand doesn't happen too often. 
Um, and it is a little bit tricky because you're basically talking about, um, you know, taking sort of software and the way, uh, you know, the way the internet works and stuff like that and saying, you know, you can't, you can't do this. And right. it's maybe, um, I don't know if it's actually. So it's, 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 it's actually, uh, uh, working on the actual physical, uh, physicality of the internet as opposed to changing the laws. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know whether the, the changes need to be made and just that they're, you know, sort of the reseller market's gone or if it's more like in this case, it's the, it's, you know, attacking sort of saying these, these bots need to be outlawed. But, you know, I think the problem with that is that there might be more sophistication to create other bots that don't appear like bots. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. It just gets, it's, yeah, it goes it's beyond. It's going to be really, really tough. Like, no, I think no matter what happens in terms of that, there's going to be a way to get yeah. around it. And that's really, it's unfortunate, you know, like this also seems to happen with, uh, you know, with other companies and other industries, like there's always a way for the, the bigger companies yeah, to figure it out, to find a way around it. Okay, let so, me ask you this. Ticketmaster, is it only in their best interest to, to fix this? I mean, they say that really uh, to think about using government legislation with any of this is really challenging because uh, to actually police it, it's near impossible. Is t- are the companies like Ticketmaster doing enough to fix this? Is it in their best interest to fix it? Um, I think that... Uh, I think it is in their best interest to to definitely do more because I think consumers at the end of the day uh, get frustrated and they they're going to blame you know companies like Ticketmaster for not putting enough controls in to prevent uh, resellers from coming in and taking stuff. So I think uh, they do have a responsibility to some degree. I'm not saying they have to shoulder it all, but uh, they're you know they're part of the process and therefore. Uh, they need to take their responsibility in making sure that that process is fair and equitable for everybody involved. Um, and so if people are circumventing their system, uh, Scott, then maybe we got to forget this whole Internet thing and just start well, flogging the tickets on the corner <laughs> street right. again like we used to. Like, like the old days. Just line up. Get yeah, off your rear end up. and go like line up. People, you know, and as the British say, just get in the queue. You know, yeah. like, has, has any, you know, does anyone do this anymore? So, no, and I realize that, you know, the, the, the upside and the downside of the Internet is that the, this convenience factor, which, by the way, are we still paying convenience fees? Yes, everything is now a convenience, right? So we, we get to pay for it. Nobody likes those convenience fees. Um, but uh, it's very frustrating. You know, at the end of the day, consumers just want to be able to, you know, go to see whatever they want yeah. to see and not have to worry about, um, you know, you talk, you, you see the buzz on social media about how people are like, oh, I'm going to, like, you know, get get on there, make sure I'm there, like, you know, hours ahead of time. It's almost like lining up physically, except right. people are just doing it virtually. So Does this um, happen everywhere? Is this always, you know, because, I mean, long before uh, there was all of this, there was still issues about who was selling tickets and how we were getting them. I mean, the, the whole uh, ticket issue it certainly isn't new. Does this happen across all jurisdic- jurisdictions? Are we worse for it here because of legislation? I don't know. You know, I, I, I think it still remains to be seen if we're worse for it. It's not, I don't know if enough time has gone by, but I think that uh, I, it's certainly a problem everywhere. But, of course, like a lot of things, uh, unfortunately, it only affects, the you know, only certain events, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to speak ill, say, of Barry Manilow, but, for example, you know, if Barry Manilow is coming to town, is this, are we even having this conversation, you know, today? Maybe 20 years ago. Um, but not not now. Like it, it obviously, it really depends on what the event is. And so, 
the problem is, is that it only affects a very, if you look at the number of events that happen worldwide all the time, these types of things are only problems. Obviously, look at what happened with the hip, right? Yeah. Everybody wanted to go. Um, and, the, and the reason why this whole issue came to light again was because of the popularity of that particular situation. We all know why. But is this so, a frustration that everyone feels? It just makes it to the mass media when there's a big show. I mean, well, we're making it sound like it's not really a big issue unless it's one of those shows that come, you know, comes around once or twice a year that everybody wants wants a piece of. But doesn't this happen all the time? It's just people are less frustrated about it, happens, it because it's not as big it a show. As much like people, people are able to see shows more often. Maybe they. Maybe they, you know, with a more popular show, they don't get to go to the show they want to, so they go to the next one. But, you know, it's, it seems to be only with certain shows that it really, really comes to light. And so that's when everybody draws the attention to it. And really those are when most of the problems are. Is there still an issue there? Yeah, but the thing is it's, it's all about supply and demand, right? That's why this whole thing works. It's kind of like spam, you know, Scott? Like, spam would go away if, people stopped clicking on stuff they should click on, right? Because it wouldn't be to anyone's advantage to keep sending this stuff out because it does cost somebody money to go through and create a market and do all this stuff. And unfortunately, people still keep clicking on things because if they didn't, then the market would go away. And if people didn't buy tickets from scalpers, then the market would go away and the problem would be solved. But of course, is that going to happen? Probably not. So is this MP, MPP's ambition for not? I mean, is this a waste of time, or is it good that, that she's drawing attention to it? I think in, at the end of the day, I think that it's good to bring this issue to light for sure. I think it will help educate people kind of what these software bots are and how they work. And um, I think this, the exact way to attack this may not be right, but it may lead to something better along the way. Uh, still remains to be seen. But I think uh, it's certainly it's never a bad thing to bring this sort of thing to light. And the fact that uh, software can do this kind of stuff, I think a lot of people um, always wonder. You know, how is it that you know I literally got there one minute later? How can all the tickets be sold out? Yeah. You know? uh, because people just don't understand it. I think they sometimes think that you know, oh, maybe Ticketmaster lied. Maybe there wasn't ten thousand tickets available. Because how could you possibly sell? you know, 10,000 tickets in under a minute. Um, and so I think uh, it's good to bring this stuff to light. And then uh, and then going forward, is this a solution? I'm not convinced of that, but uh, I certainly think that bringing it to light is a, is a good idea. Sid Bolton has been with us, curator of the Personal Computer Museum, talking about an Ontario MPP who wants to outlaw scalper bots. Is that the answer? Will it work? Sid, website we can go to to find out what you're doing at the museum? Go visit pcmuseum.ca. Thanks, Sid. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Sophie Koala is with us, MPP for Kingston and the Islands. Of course, this Ontario MPP wants to outlaw Scalper Bots, the computer software that snatches tickets away from fans and concert goers before we even get a chance to purchase tickets. And Sophie is with us now. Hi, Sophie. How are you today? I'm very well, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time to, to join us. Did you eventually get in to see the hip on that show in Kingston? No, I didn't, actually. <laughs> oh, no. All right. So what is it that we can do, uh, or what you can do as a government, to solve this? How, how many? What's in the toolbox? What can you do? So I'm glad you referred to a toolbox, because that's exactly what this private member's bill is. It's about enhancing the security and increasing access for consumers. 
Um, and it's just gone through second reading. At this point, um, the best thing that we can do as the public is to make sure that everybody who's listening tells their MPP that they would like this bill to come forward to committee. So it's the, the bill has been referred to the Standing Committee on General Government, and uh, once it gets there, it will be debated with all three parties and stakeholders. So we'll look at ways in which we can improve the bill and make it the best possible bill that we can. Uh, some are suggesting, uh, including uh, the opposition, is is suggesting uh, MPP, uh, uh, sorry, an NDP MPP, suggesting that uh, this was created by this government when the law was changed that prohibited tickets from events from being sold at their face value, and the legalization of the reseller market is where this all starts. Is it about technology, or is it about stopping this market? It's about uh, the technology that is being used to bypass the security measures uh, that have been put in place. So it's about our ability to respond to a changing marketplace. You know, the technology is always going to be there and it's always going to improve, uh, unfortunately, and people are going to be making incredible profits when they resell those tickets. Uh, so we know that it's probably not going to eliminate that, Scalpers have been around forever, um, and it's not going to stop that altogether. But anything that we can do that helps more of the public access the tickets in as an affordable way as possible, I think is, is a good thing. Uh, Ticketmaster is quoted as saying that using government legislation with any of this is really challenging because to actually police it, it is near impossible. I guess it's in their best interest as well to try to find a solution for this too, is it not? I would think so, and I think that uh, industry is definitely going to be uh, one of the partners at the table. They have they have come forward and they've um, approached me and we've talked about some different aspects of this bill and what can be done and we will be working very, very closely with them. So it'll be complaint driven. Obviously the government can't get into policing ticket sales. That's not something that Mm-hmm. You know, is is in our mandate, but I think making the public aware of what's going on and working with the industry itself is going to be uh, part of the success. Do you think if this goes through that we can actually make a dent in this? That we'll actually see a difference? Well, I'm the, I'm an eternal optimist, so yes, I would like to think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what has the feedback been on this since you've announced it? It's been very very positive. I've had. Uh, I've had communication come in from national and provincial music organizations, um, entertainment organizations, ticket sellers. I've had uh, in- individuals come forward from my riding and from other ridings across the province. Um, you know, families have come forward and told me stories about wanting, just wanting to be able to go out and have those cultural experiences with their families, with their children, whether it's to a concert or a baseball game or Toronto Maple Leafs, you name it. People are wanting to engage in cultural activities, and because of this technology, less people are able to do so at a price that they can afford. So this is a, be- this is a consumer protection piece, 
And it's it's really important, I think, that we, we get this done. Sophie Koala has been with us, MPP for Kingston and the Islands, uh, wants to outlaw scalper bots, the computer software that snatches tickets away from fans as they're trying to legitimately obtain them. Sophie, thanks very much for the time and insight. Good luck with this. I'm sure you got lots of support. Thank you, Scott. And feel free to encourage others to sign a petition. I will have a petition up on my website within the next couple of days and uh, make sure their MPPs are aware that they would like to see this come forward. Sophie Koala, MPP for Kingston and the Islands. Thank you, Sophie. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.